Please turn also to the Old Testament, to the book of Ecclesiastes. The text for this morning is Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verses 16 through 20. Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verses 16 through 20. This also is the reading of God's holy word. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. May we go to our God and Seek the Lord's blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our Lord God, we thank you, Father, for uh, the clarity of your word and its authority. Father, we pray acknowledging that oftentimes uh, we are going to be under not only uh, unwise leaders, but wicked leaders. And Father, we acknowledge that uh, if anyone is in authority, that you have placed him or her there. Father, we pray that you would remind us of our duty to pray for our magistrates, for uh, our spiritual leaders. And Father, we pray that you would watch over those who are over us at the state, at the federal level, at the city level. And Father, we pray that you might remind us that you are the one who has the power to change the king's heart, like a watercourse that you direct wherever you choose. Father, we pray that you would grant us wisdom, that our words would be used properly, that we would come to you in prayer, that indeed you have the power to thwart the wicked plans of evil men and women. And Father, we pray that you indeed would be exalted. We pray, Father, that the good news of the gospel would go forward, that indeed there is only one mediator between God and man, and that is uh, the man Christ Jesus. May he receive glory and honor and praise. And we pray that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. In a passage of scripture, it talks about going to the field of the sluggard. And how if you look at uh, the sluggard's home, that it becomes apparent that he is a sluggard. That various things will show that. That neglect... Uh, will manifest itself in various ways. Uh, that here in the scriptures it mentions that the roof sinks in, or the rafters sag, or the house leaks. And these are all signs of some type of physical neglect. But have you thought about what the signs are of spiritual neglect? Obviously, when there's neglect to a building, it has a certain effect. But what about your soul? Maybe, maybe you won't notice after a day or two or a month, but at times the, the effect of spiritual neglect can be very extreme. And for those who are doing it, 
it may not be so readily apparent, but for those around, it becomes pretty clear. That this passage is a reminder to us that we should guard against spiritual neglect. Because of all things, the worst that happens to a house is that if it's neglected so much, it's decrepit and it must be raised to the ground, meaning destroyed to the ground and rebuilt. But what about a soul? A soul cannot be rebuilt. A soul is eternal. That there will be an eternal, there, there will be eternity for a soul, whether in heaven or in hell. And that as long as there is still breath in a person, that there is the duty that you and I repent and believe upon Jesus Christ. That there is always hope because the gospel of Jesus Christ gives us hope. That Satan wants to say, this person is lost, or might be saying, you are lost, you should just give in and have fun because there's no hope for you. But you realize that that's not God's message. God's message is always, there is a turning point, and it should be today, it should be now. That there is hope in the gospel because our Lord Jesus is the one who calls sinners to faith in Him. And He calls us to repentance. Here in the book of Ecclesiastes, that we summarize it by saying vanity or meaninglessness. That life under the sun is difficult. That it's difficult due due to the curse of the fall. That because of Adam and Eve's sin of eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They disobeyed God. This was rebellion. It was an act of rebellion. And we're told that that had ramifications, not just on them, but upon everyone, all of their descendants. It had ramifications on even the very earth and the creatures. And that life under the sun due to the curse is, uh, is difficult. It's suffering. And that outside of the Lord Jesus, outside of finding meaning in God... An attempt to find satisfaction and meaning and value in life. It will be a striving after wind. That there is vanity in looking for meaning in life outside of God. If, if you and I assume, if we assume that God does not exist. Then there is, uh, there is no hope left in this life. So the truth that we see in this passage A kingdom, earthly or spiritual, advances based on the character and virtue of its leaders first and then its citizens. A kingdom, earthly or spiritual, advances based on the character and virtue of its leaders first and then its citizens. We'll examine this in three points. The first is the character of the kingdom in verses 16 and 17. The second, the progress of the kingdom in verses 18 and 19. And then third, the response to the kingdom in verse 20. So this first point, the character of the kingdom, in verses 16 and 17. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Here, the the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, regarding this vanity or this meaninglessness or the striving after wind... That frequently in this book of Ecclesiastes, the author Kohelet mentions uh, 
that of rulers and their rule, specifically oppression and injustice. We see it mentioned in particular in chapters 3 and 4, the lament of oppression and, and the injustice of human rule. So this apparently was a topic that was important to the author. And in chapter 10 here, he revisits that topic even as he speaks about the power of folly. He speaks about the, the grave effect about folly in a person's life. He even begins with the very matter of this fly in the perfume and how a dead fly in the perfume ruins all the perfume. And we see also the matter regarding uh, the, fo- the folly of rule. That uh, evil sits in high places while rich men sit in humble places. So here he's, he's talking about how there is injustice. That folly sits in high places. How, how does it happen? Someone put them there. And we ask, well, what is God doing? Well... Oftentimes God puts rulers, evil rulers in high places so that we might understand uh, the beauty and the glory of his reign, of his rule. This was the whole point that God had with Israel when he didn't just say, Abraham, you're going to be my people and you're all going to be happy. He told Abraham that uh, his descendants would be like the sand of the seashore. But then he said, and your descendants will be enslaved 400 years. God in his wisdom decided that. It wasn't man who chose that. It wasn't some freak occurrence. God, God told him this. He told him this before it would happen. And it was so that the Israelites would know Pharaoh is a wicked master. And in contrast, then we know how good and gracious and kind the Lord Jesus is. Here in verses 16, you have the warning about a troubled rule. That there's two traits mentioned. And I'm sure there's many others, but these two were apparently enough to identify the issue. He begins by saying, woe to you, meaning that there will be difficulty in this land. These two traits, when it says, when your king is a child, or acts like a child, it's it's not so much a matter of age. All we have to do is is look at uh, 2 Kings chapter uh, 22, was it, regarding King Josiah. That his father was a wicked king, but Josiah began his reign at the age of eight. And we're told that he was a righteous king of Judah. In fact, one of the most righteous kings. One of the best kings. So it's not a matter of age. We look at these traits. (coughs) When your king is a child. uh, Here, it's a matter of maturity. It's a matter of maturity. Uh, It's not a matter of... Uh, the number of times that, uh, that the person has gone around the sun. The other matter is that of debauchery. And your princes feast in the morning. So if the king lived the life of a fraternity party, right? He, if he was like a, uh, a person in college who, who lived at a frat house and enjoyed the drunkenness and the orgies and the drug use and the sexual immorality, that this kingdom will be doomed, just as it's doomed when there is a, uh, a king who acts like a child. 
And we consider this matter of immaturity. We explain this trait, that of immaturity. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the Apostle Paul, in addressing the Corinthians, he uses this uh, analogy. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. Uh, I, I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. Right? So it, it, there's an understanding of how children are different than adults. Children are different than adults. And what, what makes children children? We, we'll look at some of these principles. That of immaturity is uh, lacking in discipline or self-control or the concept, understand the concept of delayed gratification. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So flee youthful passions that those who are immature lack this discipline. They lack this self-control. And it's, it would be dangerous. Dangerous for any individual. How much more dangerous than for a ruler, for a king. This immaturity also involves a selfishness. Considering only uh, my own needs and desires. So you think about uh, what effect it would have on a family. If there's one child out of several. If they only think about themselves and not their other siblings. Or, or his or her parents. That this would be tragic on a family. How much more so when a ruler thinks and acts and administers in this way. Also regarding immaturity, there is the, uh, the child's way of being driven by fear. Being, making decisions, making choices in life based on fear or cowardice. And instead... The Lord calls us that we would be led by faith, that we would be led by our convictions, that God does not call us to make decisions based on fear, that fear should not drive us as people, should not lead us, it should not govern the decisions that we make each day, but rather our faith in Jesus Christ, his provision for us, his goodness, his greatness, his glory. That children are those who are driven by fear. That God calls his people of maturity to bravery, to, to courage. It's expected that children, or those who are immature, would lack wisdom. They would lack understanding of how the physical and the spiritual world operates. That uh, the symptom... The symptom, but one symptom of this would be grumbling and complaining when things become difficult. I have a friend who's a teacher, and uh, he says that you, you know that you're doing the right thing when your students who are in fourth grade or eighth grade or, or twelfth grade, whatever grade it is, uh, when they start complaining about the work that you assigned them. Because he says that children need to be pushed. And they complain when things get hard. But he realizes, hey, this is true each and every time. Right? If they're complaining, he says he's satisfied because he knows that it's the right thing. They, they need it. This lack of wisdom or lack of understanding about the way this world works. Perhaps we can explain it as even in, in the sciences, in thermodynamics... That entropy, that things go towards disarray, 
<clears throat> if you let something go naturally, it will go to disarray. It, it won't go to order. Another way to explain this one is that gardens and sheep are not self-tending. That people, wives are described as gardens. And that husbands are told to tend their gardens. The husbands, your wives, are not self-tending. That the flock, the, the congregation were told that they are like sheep and they're not self-tending. So you put all these things together, these examples. It's an understanding, it's wisdom that says that uh, spiritual maturity does not come with age. It doesn't come with age. So you look at physical maturity. It's a matter of the clock. It's going to happen. That children are born. And over time, they're going to become physically, sexually mature. It's just give it a matter of time. But that's not the way that spiritual maturity works. Spiritual maturity comes with hardship. It comes with not getting your way and realizing that you are called to submit to God when you don't get your way. Imagine, imagine how difficult life would be if a child always got what they wanted. But the parents never told the child, no. I want this. Yes. I want that. Yes. And you think about, what would it be like to work? What would it, what would it be like to work with such a person? What would it be, what would it be like to have uh, this person as your roommate uh, in college or, or for some kind of uh, a travel event? It would be difficult because everything would revolve around this person. And you realize that spiritually, God doesn't give birth to spoiled children. That in our lives, hardship comes so that we might become spiritually mature. That you and I learn we don't get what we want in life. And this is God's way of disciplining us. Of conforming us to His Son, Jesus Christ. Another matter regarding immaturity is that of having a fragile self-image. A fragile self-image. And this is seen in being unable and unwilling to accept criticism. It's so easy in this world... All you have to do is watch one of these, what is it, uh, American Idol, The Voice, uh, you think, So You Think You Can Dance, whatever these shows where there's a, there's a contestant and then there's a judge or judges. And you think about how uh, if, if the judge, you know, whether or not he's trying to ridicule the contestants, right, these people are broken after hearing the, the, uh, the judge's view of, and the judge's rating of them. But here, you and I have to understand that our identity is not in our performance. Think about it like this. Your value and your worth is not in your GPA. I'm not saying that we're, we're called to be poor students. I'm saying that, you know, if, if you drive a nice car and you have a good GPA, it doesn't mean that God is pleased with you. That's not how you earn God's favor. That's not your identity. Your identity is in Christ. So it doesn't matter what man says of you. It doesn't matter how many people slander you. 
Your identity is in Christ, and so long as your identity is in Him, that you and I should be able to accept rebuke, a good and righteous rebuke that we need. This is how we grow in Jesus Christ. Not having a fragile self-image, but being able to accept rebuke and being able to accept criticism is part of maturity. This is how we will grow in Christ. Otherwise, we'll be like the snowflake that melts. So this is immaturity. And then we have debauchery. And your princes feast in the morning. And we're told that this is woeful. This is, this is going to be bad for a kingdom, for a rule. And what happens here? The general principle, uh, he who gets drunk, gets drunk at night. But here, things are particularly bad when the, when the princes feast in the morning. So typically what happens is that people drink, and they drink to excess, and then they, they do that at night, and then they sleep it off, and then and when they wake up, they have kind of like a hangover, but, but then, you know, they, they can kind of go about their day when they're young. Uh, they can probably use their strength to get through it. But uh, when princes feast in the morning, so they get drunk in the morning, which means that their entire day is shot. The hangover, uh, the, the, the drunkenness, uh, the passing out, that this prevents them from having any functional day. So you think about the affairs of the state, the administration of justice, uh, of rule, that none of those things happen. And we also must be reminded that authority and power are for the good of the state. So the rulers, that they have to think about, they're, they're placed there by God. And they're placed there by God to serve that state, to serve, to serve that, that dominion. And authority and power then are not used for their own self. It's for the good of the state. That they are servants. They're servants of God. They're servants of uh, their community. And these traits also trickle down. These traits trickle down, meaning if you have a ruler, we're told in Proverbs uh, 29.12, if a ruler listens to falsehood, all his officials will be wicked. So if, if the ruler is constantly listening to people who tell him lies and falsehood, then all those who tell lies will start to get a hearing from this king. Proverbs 16.12, it is an abomination for kings to commit wicked acts, for a throne is established on righteousness. So here, even a secular kingdom understands that righteousness is important for the reign, for the long, long term, the longevity of a reign. And that's not saying that, that every, every kingdom that reigned long is necessarily righteous. But there is an understanding here that if a throne is going to last, that there must be justice and uprightness. We have on the flip side uh, the signs of good rule in verse 17. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Here, when your king, so these two traits mentioned, when your king is the son of the nobility. So we're not talking here about someone's birth lineage, per se. We're talking about someone's character, someone's character, not a birth lineage. So just because they have a royal lineage doesn't mean that they are good. We have, also, we have that example of King Josiah, uh, who started rule at age eight. His father was wicked. 
But God is the one who changes the heart. We have a bad example, that of Rehoboam. That Rehoboam would have received good instruction from his father, Solomon. And he was not a child when he began his reign. He's probably about 40, around 40 or so. So he was a mature man. But he was wicked. He was unwise because he listened to the young men, his advisors. He listened to his frat party friends, right? He listened to his his, uh, fraternity brothers rather than listening to the uh, great beards who were advisors to his father Solomon. And he ended up breaking up the kingdom. And when we think about signs of good rule, how much more so do we think about the reign of Jesus Christ, who manifests true selflessness, who thought of others before himself, that he willingly laid down his life so that we as sinners might have life in Jesus Christ. We think about his righteousness, that Jesus' decisions, each and every one is perfect, that his character is holy, that he manifests exceedingly great wisdom, that when you go about your day, that we often have to come to the challenge of, or come to the realization of, you know what, I didn't plan my day out too well today. And it could be because you wanted to get uh, X number of things done, and you didn't, you didn't get even close to that. You didn't get half of it, or whatnot. But here, we ought to understand that Jesus, as a man, when he lived on earth, he would have had perfect decisions regarding priority and time. Meaning it is possible to have it. He only had 24 hours in a day. He was a man. He needed to rest also. And then there's his faithfulness, his diligence. And all these things uh, demonstrate that he is God and that he is a ruler who is worthy of our worship, our faith, and our obedience. We have another trait, that the princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. When we think about food... That food ought to be enjoyed, but that uh, gluttony is when we eat only for the enjoyment of it. And this is why in various times, with the, was it the Romans, they had these big troughs that they used, that they ate just for the satisfaction of eating. You, you follow what, what happened next with the big troughs. And here, the description is that these princes who were just, who were proper, who were good, that they ate for strength, meaning that they ate so that their bodies would be nourished, so that they might serve, that they might do work, that they might do the work of the kingdom. And that Jesus described this about his own father and about himself. He said, my father is working until now, and I am working. The description of our God is that he works. And that our Lord Jesus, while he was on earth, was one who did work. And that this is the very character of a kingdom that will stand. Is is that there is righteousness, that there is diligence, and there's uprightness. So that's the first point, the character of the kingdom. The second point is the progress of the kingdom in verses 18 and 19. Through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. 
here this mention of the roof sinking and the house leaking. So these Near Eastern homes had flat roofs that people would walk on. So you can imagine that there would be uh, like logs or beams across it, and there would probably be some kind of dirt or plaster on the top to, 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 to seal those gaps between the logs. And uh, here in the States, we, we don't walk on our roofs, and our roofs aren't flat. They're, they're angled. It, it makes it so that water and snow can, can slide off easily. So for their flat roofs that they walked on, the water would accumulate there. This is what water does, accumulates in flat structures. And without regular maintenance then, these roofs would start to break down and start to leak. And no one likes it when uh, there's this dripping, right? If right under, right under a, a roof, someone is sleeping and there's a dripping on them. But this would be bad. <clears throat> Here, the description of a physical house is often used to describe that of a kingdom. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, that uh, David desired to build God a house, meaning a temple, and God said that he would build David a house. Now, it wasn't a house because David already, he already lived in a palace. And that was the whole point. David was saying, hey, I have this palace, but your ark is still in a tent. And I ought to build you a house. And so God is not saying, I'm going to build, David, I'm going to build you a house, meaning a better palace. He's saying, I'm going to build you a dynasty. I'm going to build you a lineage. So the house then is, is symbolic of an administration, a, a, a dynasty. And so here, the mention of the house, the descriptions about the roof leaking, that this has to do with the kingdom, the kingdom itself. <clears throat> Notice that there is going to be a coupling of characteristics. That with debauchery, with, with uh, immaturity, certain things will go hand in hand in it. That the idleness of hands, hands that are idle, that they're going to be coupled with worldliness of heart. You understand that? If, if someone has the worldliness of heart... They will have idleness of hands. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. The Apostle John writes, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. That these desires, the pride, uh, lusts of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, so uh, the sexual immoral things, the material things, the materialistic things, and then just plain boastfulness or arrogance. That these three things that describe, they, they kind of summarize what worldliness is. And having worldliness in the heart uh, will lead to idleness of the hands, particularly when we think about the kingdom of God. There's also the slothfulness of intellect. The slothfulness of intellect. You realize that Satan is throwing all of these uh, breaking balls, curveballs at us all the time in the messages that we, that we receive. The, the news that pops in your news feeds, the, uh, the advertisements that show up, they're all saying you have to have this. You need to believe this. And there's a certain wisdom that we need. A, a certain, we're never called as Christians to be naive. 
We're called to be innocent. But we're called to be as wise as serpents. We're not to be easily deceived. That this was Eve's problem, we're told. Eve's problem, and we're not to follow her. Ephesians 4.14, we're told that we ought not to be children. You see here, immaturity. We ought not to be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. Think for a moment. You open this news article, and think about what's happening. When that news article gets under your skin, and your response is this burning anger and outrage at a particular group of people, at a particular other, someone other than you, okay, you ought to ask yourself, is this wisdom upon which you're acting? Is this truth on which you're acting? Because you think about what the Lord, how the Lord leads us. That there ought to be diligence on our part to search and study the scriptures. What is our answer to the fear that, that, that the news is trying to put into you and to me? There ought to be a biblical response. That of faith and not fear. That of trust in our God and not anger and outrage. We think about a spiritual kingdom. Spiritual kingdom begins in, in God's work, of course, but regarding your own soul. This author, Charles Bridges, he writes, Never expect spiritual wealth or maturity while indulging in carnal sloth. Meaning that if you expect to have spiritual wealth, if you expect spiritual good in your life, you expect spiritual maturity. It's not going to come by carnal sloth. Just as someone is not going to become an Olympic athlete by sitting on the couch, there's got to be blood, sweat, and tears. And so also, being mature in Jesus Christ, it's going to come with suffering. It's going to come with disappointment. It's going to come with much soul-searching, much diligence in the study of God's Word and in prayer. The kingdom is white for harvest, but the workers are few. How often is it that, um, that we just don't believe the power of the gospel? And we don't believe in the Holy Spirit's ability to change hearts. Who's going to believe this message? Did a prophet ask that? Who will believe this message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? God's people, that we must believe among all people that God's grace indeed is great. Jesus is powerful to save and the Holy Spirit does the work of conversion. Are you going to do the persuasion? Because I'm going to admit to you that I cannot. How often it is that you and I must depend on this very matter of prayer. That God is the one who changes hearts. God is the one who takes hearts of stone. And removes it and gives hearts of flesh. Regarding the spiritual kingdom. And the lack of diligence. Proverbs 18.9 says, Whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. 
meaning that someone who is, is not diligent in maintaining, it's the equivalent of one who is guilty of vandalism. Right? So if uh, the park bench is, is not maintained regularly, that it becomes decrepit. And we're told from a spiritual sense, it's, it's no different than a person who comes and actively vandalizes it and tries to break it. And so also regarding our soul, so also regarding Christ's kingdom. That if you and I are not diligent in building God's kingdom, it's the same as attempting to destroy it. Maybe uh, one way to think about this is that if you and I are not thinking about uh, missionary opportunities, evangelistic opportunities to others, either we are the missionaries or we are the mission field, right? If, if you're not diligent in trying to evangelize others, then uh, others will have an evangelistic message for you that, that isn't the gospel. It's something else. Right? I talk to various people uh, who are of different groups, and I think to myself, wow, this person is a very active evangelist regarding his or her cause. It's just very anti-gospel. But you and I have to ask ourselves, are we going to be changed by the bad news of others who are active in their attempt to make disciples? Or is, are, are you and I believing in this good news that Jesus has given us, that he said would change and transform this world? When we think about the activities and values of the kingdom, in verse 19, bread is made for laughter, wine gladdens life, money answers everything. So bread is made for laughter. Here, Regarding the, the kingdom and the administration, it's understood that there would be these expensive banquets, right? That, that the meals were prepared, that oftentimes there was business done, administration, relationships being built. Regarding wine, that oftentimes the Christian church has a, somewhat of a misunderstanding of this, right? That, that the scriptures talk about how wine gladdens the heart, so that wine or alcohol is not absolutely bad, right? But is it the case that wine is a mocker and that alcohol is a brawler, meaning that can it be abused? Well, more often than not, alcohol, when it's used, is being abused, uh, but we have to be very careful with it, right? It turns out the more you forbid it, right, uh, rather than give instruction regarding its proper use, the more you forbid it, the more it gets abused, Right? That there, there ought to be freedom to partake of it, but there ought to be wisdom in how it is used. And then we come to this matter of money. Money answers everything. You realize that money has many benefits. It's a convenient form for commerce or, or of legal tender, meaning that uh, if, if there were no money, if there were no currency, and you had to do business, you had to do work, well, uh, you talk to someone, I'll, I'll trade you this for this. Okay, well, uh, I want B. Well, I want A. Well, well, he doesn't have B, he, he has C. Well, then you've got to trade with someone, and you, and you can understand why money is useful. But you have to understand also there's limits to money. Money, money cannot redeem your soul and pay 
the ransom to God for your life. This is straight out of Psalm 49, verses 7 to 9. That you, you cannot pay God money to ransom your soul. Because God, number one, He owns all the money in the world. Right? All the wealth in the world belongs to Him in whatever form it is. That it cannot buy your freedom. Jesus alone pays the ransom to set you free. His costly blood is that which saves sinners. By His blood you are washed clean, whiter than the snow. And this good news that God commands you to embrace it by faith. You realize here that uh, money also cannot buy you joy or happiness. That those who have so much of it, a surplus of it, oftentimes the least happy people in this world. And it can't buy you health. That money can get you good doctors, but you realize that God, doctors cannot give you health. It also cannot give you peace of conscience. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can bring that peace of conscience of, yes, we are indeed sinners, but God has removed the guilt from us as far as the east is from the west. This is how your conscience, my conscience, can become clear by believing in Jesus Christ. And this is why people are driven to madness, driven to suicide. How, how do they remove that guilt? How do they remove that shame? It's only because Jesus freely offers his life for sinners. And that his life and his death were payments. And his perfect righteousness he freely gives to us who are unworthy to receive it. The very life you and I couldn't live. He lived on behalf of sinners. Here money comes with temptations. It's very easy to think that money is that which provides for us. That I work, I get an income, and that, that income puts food on the table. But yet in our prayers even, the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, it's a reminder to us that God is the one who provides us our daily food. It's easy for us to start to think mechanistically that money provides these things. No, money doesn't provide those things. God provides those things, and he uses the simple means of money. That money is, is no substitute for what is lacking. I'll give you a very simple example of this. You look at women. Women like security. So as a, as a woman looks for a husband, that they, they want to find someone who can provide, someone who can provide for them. So oftentimes, you know, when, when women look for men, that, that they may not look for the most evident thing, the most important thing regarding the, the man being a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. Instead, they look at, well, the guy is very good at making money. And that to her, money is security. But then you look at what's lacking. This, his, his accessibility to make money cannot make up for his lack of being a follower of Jesus Christ. Trouble will come. Trouble will come in that situation. That money or ability to make money cannot make up for what's lacking. What's lacking in uh, a, someone who is dead versus someone who is alive in Christ. That the ability to make money or having lots of money can't make up for a lack of character or uh, a lack of godliness. Or having lots of money can't make up for uh, you not having uh, genuine relationships 
in your life. But money can't fill those holes. It's a poor, uh, poor placekeeper for life. And even as you and I think about this, think about what a kick in the pants that I need. What the kick in the pants that we all need regarding uh, the administration of Christ's kingdom. Now we have desires. We, we have visions of what the kingdom should be and ought to be. But you and I must ask ourselves, are we making decisions every day that reflect faith that Jesus is building his kingdom? And he willingly uses broken vessels of clay in order to do it. These are the decisions that we have to make every day. How am I going to be an active servant of our Lord Jesus? And how will he use me? Because here we, we can come back and say, well, I'm flawed. And Jesus knows that, right? He knows that. He can use flawed vessels. And you and I have to believe that he will use flawed vessels to bear witness of this good news. That he, he specifically said that he would not use angels. He doesn't use angels to bear witness of the gospel. Because angels have no understanding. They have no experiential knowledge of the forgiveness of sins. They have no opportunity of forgiveness. It's you and I who can tell others, come meet the man who knew everything that I did in my life. Yet he received me. He forgave me. He can forgive you too. And so here, you think about the reminder that we need about the progress of the kingdom. That we must be faithful. We must be diligent. That there must be not only a maintenance, there must be an advancement of Christ's kingdom. We have also in the third point, the response to the kingdom in verse 20. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. Here, the author understands. If you have a, a ruler or a land that is ruled by an immature, debauched uh, man or woman... The end result is that there will be bitterness and there will be seditious thoughts. How can we get rid of this person? We're going to curse this person and we're going to find someone else to replace this person because uh, our livelihood, our safety are all at risk because of this ruler. You can understand that, right? The person's saying, hey, our, our, our rulers are evil. And there's mayhem everywhere so that we need to think about... Uh, Providing safety, providing commerce, and all these things. And the end result is the person is, uh, is going to be cursing their rulers. Right? And, and there's that warning. Do not curse the king. It says, even in your thoughts. Cursing begins in the heart. It's not, it's not beginning on the lips, it's beginning in the heart. And from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And he says, watch out for that bird. See, in our language, there's a saying... A little bird told me, right? This is probably coming from Ecclesiastes chapter 10. This little bird told me. He says, be very careful. This doesn't say how they will find out. It could very well be that uh, the, the thoughts of your heart kind of slowly slip out from the words that you use, like a, like a pressure release valve, and little things that you say start to come out. Or it could very well be that these rulers, especially the wicked ones, Right, that they would have spies all around, 
right? They would have spies all around. And, and here, some of you are going to laugh at me, but I'm, I'm going to warn you. I'm going to warn you, uh, your Google Dots, right, or your Amazon Alexa, you, you keep that plugged in in your house and you speak freely about certain things, right? I, I, I thought it would be interesting to have a certain test, right? Talk to some friends. You know, the, the ads that pop up uh, on their Facebook page, right? Uh, very odd that, hey, what, were they, is your phone alive? It's listening. And, and it's able to, to come up with uh, advertisements. Hey, I, I don't think that's too far, uh, too far-fetched at all. The scriptures warn us, Exodus chapter 22, verse 28, you shall not curse God, nor curse a ruler of your people. So it shouldn't happen, not even in the heart, because here, understand that the scriptures address not action only, it addresses matters of the heart. We should not be cursing rulers. We should not be blaspheming God. Right here, I think about the recent years that... uh, that Christians get drawn into this, right? That uh, to criticize a ruler, you look in the, in the Near East, in the Middle East, in other parts of the world, even today, even to criticize publicly a ruler, that's grounds for execution, right? They will take you, they will spill your blood for that. In our country, we have a freedom, apparently, but it's different regarding what God requires of us. That to criticize someone is one thing, to disagree with them, a ruler is one thing, but to revile them is completely different. To revile, to mock someone in reviling them, that, that this is never acceptable for Christians, no matter how bad, no matter what's going on. Instead, we're told, we're given a very different solution. We read in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. See here, a quiet life in all godliness and dignity, this is saying that we ought not to be living seditious, revolting lives. Our lives should not, we should not be those who are the revolutionaries trying to foment uh, some kind of revolution. This is not what the Lord calls us to. The only, the only revolution that we ought to be promoting and looking forward to is when the first become last and the last become first, and that's the good news of the gospel. That is the revolution we should be pushing for. That's the only revolution we should push, we'd be pushing for. So instead of cursing the king, rather we're told to pray for the king. And that if every time we we thought about cursing the ruler, we we open the news, we think about the decisions that are made, think about the appointments that are made. Every time we curse, we, we want to curse the king for what he's done. Instead, we're told we should be praying for the king. That this is right. Save your breath. Save your heart, not for cursing. But... For prayer. You think about what what the Lord can do. What if the ruler is wicked? The ruler is wicked. Then pray for his or her conversion. Pray that they might know Jesus Christ. Pray that they would bow the knee to Jesus Christ. Whatever wicked agendas that they have. In evil. Pray that God would thwart those wicked agendas. If, If they're not converted. That God would thwart the wicked agendas. And that godly. God-pleasing agendas would be put in place. 
That God is the one who thwarts the plans of wicked men. We believe that, and we should pray for that. And if they are believing, the ruler is believing, and it is just, then we should pray for a greater boldness to rule well, and blessings upon their rule, and peace in that kingdom. Now when you think about what wicked men and the use of winged creatures or birds or spies can find out, what ought we to conclude about our great God? How will he find out the very thoughts and intentions of our hearts? Is it any way that you have to hide those thoughts and intentions from the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords? The answer is, it is impossible. God will know everything in your heart. And he will judge everything that comes from your heart. So when we think about this warning about your thoughts not cursing the king, we must think at a greater level that we should be blessing our God. That we should be thinking great thoughts about God. We should be having hearts of submission, hearts of praise and of blessing to our God. All the excuses are going to be cut out. Well, I heard this recently. I don't like the Christians and their conservative stances on various things. Is that excuse going to hold water when you're standing before the judgment seat? Hey, God, you're represented. I didn't like them. <laughs> I don't think, I don't think you're, going to get, you're going to get any hearing from our God. You can make all the excuses you want on judgment day. None of them. None of them will stand. You had no time. You had no opportunity. You were raised by incompetent parents. You, you, you lived in a country where the gospel closed. Whatever excuse that you have, the excuses are all gone. The excuses are all gone. They amount to nothing. Every man knows. His conscience speaks and says that he is, has broken God's law. She has broken God's law. And that we must answer to him. And he has given us terms of peace that you and I cannot, we, we cannot uh, negotiate them. The terms of peace are repent and believe in Jesus Christ. That is the only term of peace that God gives for sinners. And that you and I must embrace it. We must believe upon it. We close with these very words from Psalm 2. Verses 10 through 12. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Kiss the son. Embrace Jesus Christ. Trust in him. Trust not in your works. Trust in Jesus Christ and him alone. He alone is the one who saves. That God is the one who judges men's hearts. You and I will all answer to him. And that every time you and I come across a wicked ruler, may you and I rejoice that our Lord Jesus reigns from our high and he indeed is righteous and that we look forward to his eternal reign. We go to our God together in prayer.